Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to your fave film critic, the podcast uh, hosted by me, created by me, starring me, produced by me, 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 Dom Griffin, your favorite film critic. Uh, this is episode 17, uh, 17, episode 17, yeah, and uh, we have some stuff to talk about, as we do every week, I would hope, right? Uh, I have a couple of news items I want to talk about. One that's like kind of a brief thing and one that's like, I don't know, it might go long. Uh, and then I'll talk about what I watched this week, uh, which is, there's a few things I watched this week that like, I'm going to review and I'm not quite sure when those reviews will come out. So like, I'm probably not going to talk about those movies as much. Uh, but I can't like, I mean, like if you follow me, if you see my letterbox, you'll see that I saw them. So it's like weird to not bring them up. Uh, And then we have like one question at the end. So should be a good time uh let's just get into it right so uh, the the news uh the first news item is uh earlier this week or like a few days ago rolling stone reported that casey bloys uh, an executive at hbo was pressuring his employees to create trolling twitter accounts to respond to negative criticism from tv critics on twitter on x slash twitter and I just, this is like one of those things that comes out, like when there's like a, like there's, like a there's like a lawsuit, like someone is suing uh, HBO uh, for like wrongful termination from the idol, I believe. So like it's like a lawsuit that Able Test phase is part of as well. But anytime there's like a big lawsuit in like the in, in the entertainment world, a bunch of stuff comes out in Discovery that ends up leaking out and, just, and ends up becoming like their own funny news items. And I'll link it in the show notes, but like this article had me rolling because it's not like, it's not just that he wanted to like combat online criticism, uh, or, or have there be people who were like leading the good fight to defend these shows from the critics or something like that would also have been bad, but I would have been like, I can kind of get it. I mean, like you put out a piece of work that you're proud of, or you think is good, or you think needs to connect with people. And maybe you don't like seeing some of the like shitty things that sometimes critics say, like on Twitter, you know, not all critics are like good critics, not all critics are like fair critics. And sometimes critics just say fucked up stuff to get likes and retweets like everybody else does, you know? So maybe you want to like fight back against that kind of lazy, uh, self-serving criticism, but you don't want to, you know, attach your at to it. You don't want to be like an executive being like, Hey, Hey, fucking Alan Sepinwall, fuck you. You know, it's bad. So I'm like, I guess I could sort of get it if like he himself just had a, had a burner and he just indiscriminately just tweeted at people like, go fuck yourselves. If they said bad things about his shows, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. I mean, like everyone's entitled to a burner, right? But then it's like he was making other people do it for him and he was giving them like specific directions on like how he wanted them to respond. And I feel like not enough is being said about how well he seems to understand how like Twitter discourse goes. So like, uh, there was a criticism of the show, the nevers, the Joss Whedon show that like he got fired off of for being Joss Whedon. Um, I I made a video about it. I'll, I'll try to remember to link it or whatever. Uh, not a very good show, but there was a criticism about how the show feels like there was a show that got made and then had like 20% of it just like indiscriminately cut out, which is not wrong. And, Blois had someone, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but whatever, uh, had someone tweet at that critic basically saying, 
uh like oh look at a shocker a couple of white male critics and you're not understanding the show for women and it was just like oh my god like i see really ridiculous at replies to critics tweets all the time and most of the time you think oh well this is just there there are people that have these thoughts there are people that think these dumb things what are you gonna do right but the idea to me now is like so like half what if every time i've seen a ridiculous response like that it's actually been like an intern who has been instructed to weaponize uh you know progressive language against these you know what i mean like it's it's so so cynical uh and it's it's gonna it's gonna kind of come back up in in the next discussion we have about the news but like the way that corporations have learned to like insidiously use uh progressive language and like you know so-called like woke talking points and stuff as like a cudgel to like shape their own narratives like for their own like marketing reasons is like so grotesque it is like so fucked up and i just something about seeing these just really had me it cracked me up because it's funny like some of the tweets are funny uh and then like the, the the kind of fake accounts it would be like a like a a woman who would like it, her her bio would say she was like a florist or something you know like just make them regular people or whatever and i just I, I think that's just the entire apparatus is funny and i saw people like calling this dude out and i guess he came out and had like a an apology or whatever and he was just like oh this is ill-conceived but like i i sort of wonder i kind of doubt really that he's the only one that does this like there's got to be tons of other people that do the exact same thing but they're not currently in a legal battle where this stuff would come out in like a discovery so I just think it's, I don't know, it's really funny to me, and it also just kind of re it reinforces like my own personal feeling about how a lot of Twitter discourse about movies and television is just like so poisoned, uh, and because a lot of times people are just like treating their fandom, whatever thing they like versus whatever thing they don't like is like team sports, and they don't mind playing dirty to win, you know what I mean? It has nothing to do with like a, an exchange of intellectual you know opinions and stuff it really just kind of boils down to like i like this thing if you don't like this thing then you're a fucking this you're a racist you're sexist you're just dumb you're whatever everyone has their different ways to to spin it and it's just unfortunate but it's also funny i'm sorry it's like it's it's genuinely very funny it gave me some much needed laughs this week um i don't know what's, I don't know what's gonna happen with that guy or the lawsuit or anything i wasn't actually that interested in reading more about that part of it but uh this is funny and like i i I feel like every TV critic now, every time they get a response, they're going to be like, oh, is this is this one of the fucking showrunners? Is this who is this? You know, I don't think this is really Cindy from Indiana. Um, so I don't know, that whole thing is very funny. Uh, but the, the thing I want to talk about that I'm like, really, really want to talk about is uh, uh, <laughs> Variety put out this article about the MCU uh, and like how fucked everything is over there. And uh, yesterday, I'll talk about this more later, but yesterday I was at a press screening in Georgetown uh, to see Michael Mann's Ferrari, which you know, I'll talk about a little bit later. And uh, I didn't get there like super early, but the screening started kind of late, which I feel like every time I've gone to Georgetown for a morning screening, it always starts like 20 to 30 minutes late. And uh, there's never an explanation. I don't, I don't know what the fuck they're doing over there. Uh, but we were, uh, in the, in the Dolby house, which is anyway, I was in there and I had like time to kill. And right when I sat down in my seat, I was checking my phone and I happened to see this article. So like, I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, 
if you are on the internet and you, if you're the kind of person who listens to my podcast, you've probably seen this article already, or you've definitely seen like pieces of it reported elsewhere, like getting aggregated and stuff. But it's like the cover story for like the print issue of Variety, I think. And it's just, I don't know if you can call it expose. Maybe that's a bit much, but it's just a, a laundry list of issues that Marvel Entertainment is having, is having at the moment. And every bit of it is just like, holy shit. Like it's a lot of stuff that I guess we've sort of heard pieces of before a little bit, maybe like they talked about, uh, how expensive she Hulk was and how the original plan for she Hulk was that she wasn't actually going to turn into she Hulk until like the eighth episode. It was going to be like one episode of her being she Hulk. Uh, and then they realized that sucked and then they kind of had to, right around it and then that's why the special effects on the show look the way they do because they were so rushed and people were overworked to to make those deadlines but that the show was like 22 or 25 million dollars an episode which is like more than the final season episodes of game of thrones which is fucking insane if you've seen she hulk like it looks like dog shit it's a fucking horrendous looking show uh and like, you know, wasn't particularly successful. I mean, as much as you can figure out what the metric even is for the success of a streaming show, right? Like it wasn't, it didn't make much of a dent in the culture or anything. Uh, then they also talked a lot about uh, Blade and how Mahershala Ali, fresh off of his second fucking Oscar, the first thing he did with his Oscar clout was go to Marvel and be like, I want to be Blade. And they're like, fuck yeah, we'll bring him out out at the, the this press conference thing. And he's got the hat on, he's going to be Blade. And then how that movie has been through so many failed script stages. Like so many writers have come on and off of it. And like, it's all been bad. I had already heard stuff before about how, like at one point it was gonna be like a period piece. At one point it was going to be very much more like a sort of like a prestige picture about like racism and the history of America and shit. It was like all this stuff that was like, dude, it's blade. It's just a cool black guy fucking killing vampires. Not to say that you can't have social commentary in it, but like you guys are really overthinking this. And seeing just how much the article goes into like how fucked it was is like very embarrassing. And I guess the current thing is they're bringing in Michael Green, who was a writer on Heroes. And then uh, he he helped write Logan and Blade Runner 2049. And uh, he's written all the new Poirot movies for Branagh. He's like, he's like, fine, I guess, whatever. I don't know that he's going to make it much better. But well, he did Logan with like three other people. But like, so he, he can do this. I am certain that we're never going to get that Blade movie. I just do not see Mahershala Ali sticking it out after the, the strike is over. Like, and if he does, and a movie does come out, there is next to no chance it's going to be any good. It's the entire thing. It's just really laughable to me. But there was also one of the things that stuck out to me was uh, they talk about the Marvels and how you know it's tracking very poorly. Pre-sales are like down. Uh, I know my theater is is opening it. We've sold like no, like no tickets. They've been on sale for weeks. We've sold like none. Um, not that that's indicative of the whole nation, but it is not a good thing. Uh, and you know, one of the reasons I think that the Marvels is tracking as poorly is it's very simple. Every Marvel movie used to be like, you'd have to have seen maybe one or two other movies to kind of get it. Like you'd have to have seen the last one, or if it's a new character, you don't have to really see anything. You'll be able to figure it out. But the Marvels is really kind of asking you to have seen all of secret invasion, a show that nobody watched or liked. All of Miss Marvel, which I've heard is actually a pretty fun show. I just never got around to it, but also was like one of the least watched shows they had. And everything about it just seems like it's not gonna be good. And it's a major bummer for like Nia DaCosta, who's the director, it's the first black woman to ever direct a Marvel movie. And she'd already in interviews been saying some stuff about the production that made it sound like really not good. Like I think she talked about like going home and crying every day. 
And then she talked about like how, you know, even though she's director, she's not like really the director and just all sorts of stuff that made it sound like she was already just like divorcing herself from this project. What I did not know until I read this Variety article is that uh, the movie had to have a lot of reshoots, which I mean, I think almost every Marvel movie does, but uh, that during post-production, she just went to the UK to start working on her next movie. And like, she just, post-production on a movie is like pretty important, but post-production on a Marvel movie where they do a lot of stuff in like that last part of the process is like pretty important. And she just dipped. And I don't think that's happened before. And if it if it hasn't ha- if it has happened before, it's never been like publicized to this degree. So, the director just throwing their hands up and saying "fuck it," not a good sign. Not a good sign at all. And you know, the thing is, the the article makes it very clear that the issues are primarily that the they just they just went they just overexpanded. You know what I mean? Like uh, they were pressured into having all the shows for Disney plus to help make Disney plus more important for the stockholders and shit. Uh, we're seeing how every studio having their own streamer is, uh, really, you know, like not good, uh, and, and has, has issues. Uh, but there's, we're seeing kind of that, uh, I don't know. We, we're seeing that like making a streaming platform your thing and, and building it around trying to make that larger and like the only way you're really making money off of it is that it's helping the stockholders and the shareholders because like the 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 image of having a bunch more um, subscribers will help like raise things or whatever. Like it helps make it look good. Like that's that bubbles like bursting everywhere. So Disney essentially pressured them into doing this. Essentially pressured them into having all these shows so that there'd be constant marvel content like no matter what and uh you know there's it's not working uh, i think that by by expanding as hard as they have to where there really, really is like a show every other month or whatever and like, there's been so much content is that this it's there's not the same level of quality control which is not to say that before that the quality control was great but it was like better and the article seems to posit that like so much of Faggy's influence is that he's very Feige, Feige. I never say his name right, mostly because I don't respect him. But he, his 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 primary like special sauce in in the MCU is that he kind of comes in near the end and like you know rejigger stuff and they do reshoots and they they swap out the blue screen backgrounds for whatever. That's like his thing that he he I guess does. And if there's all these things being shot all at the same time, he's not as involved in as many of them, which means, and also, you know, they, they famously were not using showrunners for these shows. It's just a bunch of people all independently working on stuff. And like, that's not how, what, how this brand was, was born, how it, how it grew, you know? So it's definitely, um, I feel like it's getting harder for people to deny what's going on and where things are that does not mean that nobody's denying it obviously i actually for the first like i i read this article while i was sitting waiting to, to watch ferrari and it was just every new paragraph was just funnier and funnier and funnier um and i, I feel like it's definitely like a sort of a chickens coming home to roost situation because like you know they've been so grossly exploitative of vfx artists and stuff like it's you know the uh, the jig is up you know what i mean they, they can't keep going on this way and it was funny. Uh, I ran to my friend Julian who's at the screening and he, I told him about the article and he was like, I can't wait to read this. And like, it's, 
it's not like a, a mean-spirited, we're all glad that this is failing type thing. I don't think it's that. It's more just like people have been trying to point out that like this is not sustainable for a while, that this is not working, that these things are going to stop connecting, that, the, that it, you, you know, ultimately, as much as a brand can be very powerful, as much as a series or a franchise can be powerful, at the end of the day, quality does win out. People want to see good things. And if you have enough bad things, you can't come out and go, there's another thing. They're going to be like, yeah, but your last thing sucked. And the thing before that sucked. The thing before that sucked. You know, they, they, it doesn't it doesn't work. So I mostly saw a lot of stuff on Twitter that was just people isolating each different you know item from the article and then having whole conversations about each of those pieces because there's so many of them. There's so many of them. You have to read the whole article. And there would be... You know, some of it's just kind of people being mean-spirited. Some of it's people, you know, retweeting it with gifts of Martin Scorsese and stuff. Whatever. I get it. I get it. I feel it. But uh, I did see one. I, I only saw one dissenting opinion. Uh, and after I read this whole thread, I was like, I'm not. I don't. I have to get off Twitter in case I see more. I, I just told the algorithm I want to see this bullshit. And I don't. And it was someone had taken. There's two pieces of art connected to the article. The cover of the print issue of variety is like an illustration and it shows the Marvel characters. Um, like some, some of the recent Marvel characters standing around it's like all, they're like all glum and shit. It's like, all, everything's fucked. And there's like an article that was used for the header of the digital version of the article. I'm sorry, an image uh, used for the header of the digital version of the article. And that image is like uh like a sort of a three dimensional or like a, yeah, like a three dimensional, like a, a line chart, like, to the side, like cheated to the side kind of. So like you're looking at it almost fate, like, like the, the, you know what I'm saying? And it's the characters like on the different peaks and valleys. And, uh, it's just like an, like a piece of art. <laughs> it's just like, that's designed to like make the article clickable or whatever, you know? And people were like picking apart the art because on X slash Twitter recently, they made it so that uh, anytime there was like a preview, you know, like the, the preview for if you have add a link to a tweet, it no longer shows headlines. It just shows whatever the header image is for the article. So it'll have like the thing saying that like variety.com and there'll be this image and then you have to click on it to see what the fuck the headline is. And I don't know why Musk did that or what the idea behind it was, honestly, if it was good or bad, but it's stupid. And that now when you look at articles, you're just like... I don't know what this is. I, I don't really open as many links on Twitter as I used to for this reason. But anyway, they rather than, and we, we already know that people don't read the articles, right? I think maybe the idea was people sometimes would just see a headline and argue about the headline. If we take the headline away, they'll have to click through and argue about the article itself. But no, these people did not click through the article and they were just fucking dissecting this piece of art that I don't think the, the like the art direction for this thing was like make it exactly like this get these specific ideas across i think it was just like hey we just want to show the marvels in turmoil so just draw a bunch of marvel people on a graph that's largely going down because that's what's happening right now but people were like oh no they're trying to uh you know blame uh the diversity for why marvel is failing they're trying to blame it on on, you know, like, you know, Shang-Chi and the Eternals and all this different stuff. And I was like, that's not at all what happens in the article. And then someone else was like, and look, they're putting like Nick Fury, a black character on part of the downslope. Like it's his fault, different stuff. And like, you notice this article doesn't even talk about Black Panther because Black Panther would show that they're not trained downwards because Black Panther made a lot of money. And it's like, it's just this whole conversation of people just in fucking denial. Like, yeah, Black Panther 2 still made money, but it did make significantly less money than the first film. 
Uh, it also was definitely killed, you know, by, by, by Chadwick Boseman's death, uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and again, a big, a big thing I saw someone else point out and I get a different tweet when they weren't defending it was like, the one thing people aren't talking about enough is that after black Panther, they didn't, it didn't matter so much that like Danny jr was leaving and Chris Evans was leaving or ScarJo was leaving because like they were going to make their new big three being like captain Marvel, Dr. Strange and, uh, and black Panther. And like they didn't come back to Dr. Strange is like kind of connecting with people, I guess. But like, I feel like Brie Larson's captain Marvel is like very hit or miss for a lot of people. And mm-hmm maybe a lot of that's just like the sexism, but you know, some of that also is just like, she doesn't, uh, she's not a very compelling baby face. She doesn't really connect with audiences, but everybody liked T'Challa. Everybody loved Chadwick Boseman. Everybody loved black Panther. Black Panther would have continued to be like the face of this new, all these, this whole new phase. Like if, if, if T'Challa was alive, he would be the face of all this shit. We'd see Chadwick Boseman promoting all this stuff. Even the movies he's not in probably, um, without him, there's a huge lack of other people who are big enough deals to carry this shit. And Tom Holland is like famous enough and people like his Spider-Man a lot, but he does not seem to be interested in this shit that much more. I think, I think he signed up for another movie just for the money. I don't think he wants to do it. Um, he seems a lot happier just like following Zendaya around and like taking selfies for her and stuff. Like he's that's, that's where he's at and I respect it. So it was just so sad seeing these people try to like defend marvel and kind of make it seem like oh these people are just here's the thing in comics like in marvel as a publisher they regularly blame bad sales on any time they do something woke you know the i I don't i don't think the go woke go broke aphorism or whatever um comes from anywhere more honest than comics i feel like comics is where people really are like no no it's true uh when you have a if you make a character black or gay or a woman or whatever sales will plummet but it's not because people specifically do not want to see those characters be diverse it's that everyone knows it's not going to it's not going to stick so even people who would normally be interested in reading a story about black captain america they know that within 18 months at the most they're going to go back to having a white captain america so there's no reason to invest in it in comics them changing these people it, it is pointless cuz like they're just going to go back to 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 status quo at some point that's why those things always drop off in sales because no one sees any point in even trying to god forbid you actually pick it up and like it it's not going to last so i do that to yourself right but with the mcu uh i don't think that them changing these characters or having a black captain america or, or focusing on women and diversity that's not the issue it's that the movies got less good the quality genuinely got less good and it's all over the place and there's not there's not as much of like a roadmap. <sighs> And I'm, I'm really, I'm really kind of bearing lead here. One of the big reasons why they're talking about how fucked they are is the Kang stuff. You know, uh, Jonathan Majors has, uh, has, you know, been implicated in, in, in like this abuse case and stuff. His lawyers, uh, did not get the case dismissed. So it's good, definitely going to move forward to trial. Uh, and additionally, there's like another case or like another incident that happened in the, in England with the same woman, the same, uh, victim, and that happened while he was shooting Loki season two, which is like out and airing now. So it's like, this isn't a thing where Marvel can just like distance themselves from it or w- play the waiting game. And they don't know what to like do about it. Like it said that the, one of the things they're talking about doing is pivoting away from Kang entirely. Uh, and then trying to like fast track Dr. Doom to be the villain of the, of the, the two big Avengers movies, which I don't know how they'd even do that. Uh, I mean, one of the things is like, they can actually technically do whatever the fuck they want. Right. Like they could, they could one, they could completely recast him because they've established that this is, a, there's a bunch of different versions of Kang 
They don't all have to look like Jonathan Majors. You can say fucking anybody else do it. Who cares? It's not real. Uh, and, and then the other thing is like you could just completely pivot away from all this stuff and call it something else, and it doesn't matter. Those movies you announced don't exist. They're probably not even done being written. Like just do whatever else you want. But one of the saddest things in the article, I almost forgot to mention, is that they talked about bringing back the original Avengers cast to do another Avengers movie, all of them back together, like bringing Black Widow back from the dead, bringing Iron Man back from the dead, getting Chris Evans some money to come back. And even if they don't do that, which they probably won't, I don't know, the fact that they talked about it, they're fucked. They are cooked. If, if things are bad enough backstage that they got to the point where they were like, what if we just brought Robert Downey Jr. back? Robert Downey Jr., who got to be in his first real movie in years and is probably going to get an Oscar this year for Oppenheimer. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to want to fucking put the suit back on. I mean, he might. He might just like money that much. I don't know. But I, th- I imagine he's been craving some credibility. I don't think he's going to jump back. But the idea that they went to that well, even as like an idea, even just like, let's just talk it out. Let's just game it out. No, you guys are fucked. I'm sorry. That is like not good. If that's where they got, that is not good. So I don't know what's going to happen with these. I mean, um, I think I see the Marvels next week. Uh, I'm curious about it. I mean, I'm not looking forward to it, but I like Night of Costa. And there's some parts of the trailer I will admit that I was charmed by. So like, I'm curious. It might be fun. I don't know. I didn't like Captain Marvel very much at all. So th- there's this can't be worse than that in my mind. But you never know. Uh, but after that, like, I don't know what the fucking next movie is. Everything we're hearing about Deadpool 3 makes it sound fucking like I want to blow my brains out. The idea that the Secret Wars is just going to be all those... We've been seeing all these memes joking about what Avengers Secret War will be. And it's just like... It just looks like Kingdom Hearts, but full of like characters from the Marvel movies or whatever. And it looks fucking bad. Like all these memes are jokes. It's like, you know, here's Hugh Jackman, here's Tobey Maguire, here's, you know, Ben Affleck, Daredevil or whatever. And everyone laughs at it, but I'm like, no, I think that's what the movie is going to end up being. I think they're just going to do that. I don't think this is like a funny thing. This is like, they're just going to do the fucking, it's going to be a boss logic movie. Basically. It's just going to be like fandom AI art. Uh, here's Hugh Jackman. Here's Tobey Maguire. Here's all the different people that we can bring back. Fuck. Here's a hologram of Lufric. No, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's going to be fucking it can be it has the potential to be very bad. The other thing is we still don't have a director for it, uh, which is crazy because like that's a big deal. They already announced Daniel Dustin Cretton to, to, to do the King Dynasty half of the movie, but they don't have someone to do the other one. He can't do both because they're going to have to like the productions will not line up. I don't believe the way they, they're planning to do it. So it has to be another director and it's got to be someone that's done a Marvel movie already. I don't think the Russos are coming back. I hope not. They suck. Uh, but I, for a little bit, it sounded like they were trying to get Sam Raimi, but I think I just heard that Sam Raimi is signing on to do some horror movie with Sandra Bullock. Not when the hero, but it's like a movie with her or something. Uh, that would probably preclude him from being able to do this. So it's like, who the fuck else? Like, Night of is clearly not coming back. I imagine they could just get someone from the shows. Since Matt Shankman, Shackman, whatever, the guy that's directing the Fantastic Four, he came from um from wandavision you know what i mean so maybe maybe one of the directors from the tv will will do it maybe benson and moorhead who worked on moon knight and are are now going to come work on daredevil they're two young they're two guys who work together who start out making low budget movies just like the russos maybe it's their turn for their sake i kind of hope not but i don't know uh it's just 
it's so over like we've been saying like me and my friends have been saying it's so over about the mcu like all year but like this is it has never been more over it is so fucking over and i'm gonna be honest i actually the real reason i did enjoy reading this article so much was that i saw that goddamn motherfucking prick one of the russos i don't know they're i don't know i can't tell them apart uh had a picture like a, a tiktok with his dog and you know martin scorsese has a dog named oscar and i don't think he named it after having an oscar but whatever he has a dog named oscar and the russo brother was like oh that's really cute a dog named oscar and he says hi to his dog it's like oh come on let's go box office like haha i don't have an oscar but i made more money and it's like yeah you have directed movies that have made considerably more money than martin scorsese's movies have made but if you take away the three marvel movies you made uh the only movies that you guys have made were like welcome to collinwood which i'm pretty sure lost everybody involved money and you mean dupree which i think i paid to see in theaters and i still want my money back uh cherry a fucking joke fucking the gray man a fucking joke like these guys are just people try to say he was just being playful and tongue-in-cheek but the vibe did not feel playful and tongue-in-cheek the vibe felt like you're really hurt that Mar that marty doesn't like these movies you should just be more like Zack Snyder, you know, John Favreau, lots of normal people have responded to his criticisms and not been like, he just doesn't, he just he doesn't understand, you know, like Scott Derrickson act like a little bitch about it. Fucking James Gunn act like a little bitch about it. Like everyone has this like chip on their shoulder. That's like, no super superheroes are, are, are they're, they really, they're real. They really count. And it's like, dude, you're an adult fucking man. I like superheroes too, but like, just stop being a fucking weirdo. Stop like, <laughs> Like your life depends on this one fucking man not liking you. And isn't like not, it's not even like Martin Scorsese isn't like these people or something. He's literally just said he saw some of these movies. They weren't for him. He fundamentally disagrees with their proliferation in the industry. It's not complicated, but every other day, someone's going to come out and be like, you're going to tell me you watched Spider-Man No Way Home. And you didn't think that was cinema that didn't, that didn't move you. Like it looked like a fucking Mitsubishi commercial. No, it didn't fucking move me, you know, but, um, I don't know. Uh, I I don't want to be the kind of like bitter, cynical person who's just like laughing at this misfortune because like ultimately I don't want anyone to fail necessarily. Like I want people to, to work and make money and tell the stories they want to tell and all those different things. I just would like to see this shit go away. And maybe we could just go back to having some superhero movies sometimes. Uh, and then maybe the people that made those ones didn't have to make them line up with 20 other fucking movies and do millions of reshoots and stuff. And like, maybe they could just be good again. I don't know. Maybe they could just be good and not whatever the fuck they've become. That's where I'm at with the whole thing. Yeah. So that's the news. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the fuck Marvel's going to do, but I guess we'll, we'll, we'll all find out. Won't we? Uh, what else? Okay. Let's see what else I got to talk about here. Scroll through my little notes. Um, Oh, so, but what I watched, we'll talk about what I watched. Sorry. So I watched like 10 movies this week ish. So the whole thing is I had to finish, uh, October, you know, every, this is like the fourth or fifth episode or talking about, uh, about October. Uh, I had originally, as I said, uh, a few episodes ago, I had a 31 movie list for, for Hooptober and I, about what, five or 10 minute movies into it, I just started going off the list and adding a bunch of random shit. Like I watched the whole Friday the 13th franchise, whatever. So I do this every year. I add a bunch of stuff because I think I'm doing so well. I'm going so above and beyond one movie a day that I have time for extra credit fun stuff. 
But then I get to watch too much extra credit fun stuff. And then I forget about all the movies that I originally put on my list. And then the month starts moving fast. Like these last two weeks, I didn't watch quite as many things. I was a little burnt out. Uh, I shouldn't say burnt out because it makes me sound like I was tired from watching movies, which I'm not. It's more just like I, I had more days where I didn't feel like watching anything or paying attention to anything that wasn't like TikTok or like Discord or, you know, whatever or YouTube or something, just basic little shit or whatever. But I rejiggered my list, which I had originally let balloon to like 63 or 64 movies or something. I whittled it back down to 55. So at the end of Halloween, I'd seen 55 total horror movies for all of October. And I only kept the original movies uh, necessary to still fulfill the Hooptober rules. So there are some movies I totally would have cut out and decided not to watch anymore, but I needed them to fulfill the the rules. So I also got rid of some movies that didn't fit the rules, but I wanted to see. I'll just I just put them on my, on my regular watch list. I'll watch them later. But um, the last few movies I did were I'm gonna talk about these kind of out of order. So I did Dracula, the original Bela Lugosi, not original, but like the Bela Lugosi Todd Browning Dracula, which I'd never seen before ever in my life, and I was very impressed by it. I thought it had a lot of really cool mood and tone. I thought Bela Lugosi's Dracula was like really cool. I thought the guy playing Van Helsing was really good. I feel like the first, I don't know, 15 minutes of that movie are like perfect. And I think that the last 10 are pretty good. And then a lot of the stuff in the middle, I, I kind of got bored during. But the opening is it has so much, such good texture and like mood. And it's just so kind of creepy and unsettling. It was really fucking, the atmosphere for that movie was really incredible. And then I followed it up with Dracula 3000 which is a movie starring Casper Van Dien uh, from Starship Troopers and the Omega Code and Coolio and Tiny Lister Jr., Debo from Friday, uh, Zeus, you know, uh, and I don't remember the other actors' names. They were just random people, I guess. But the plot of Dracula 3000 is just the plot of Jason X, but with Dracula, so it's a Casper Van Dien is like a descendant of, of, uh, <laughs> of Van Helsing and they, they, they run like a salvage ship and they go to this abandoned ship. Uh, and it's called the Demeter. It's like the Demeter from, you know, the last voyage of the Demeter from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, but Udo Kier is the captain. So like the whole movie is interspersed with Udo, his like captain's logs. Uh, having seen the last voyage of the Demeter this year, I thought this was really funny that they, it's like just a shitty space version of it kind of. But you don't see all the stuff that happens in the ship. You just have Udo's vlogs, essentially, that he filmed. So, like, he got to get paid to record a handful of vlogs and leave. Uh, he brings a lot of character to the movie. But it's, you know, they get to the ship, and obviously it's like a it's like a 100-year-old ship or something in space. And Dracula's still on board. And, like, you don't see Dracula for, like, a while. He's only in the movie for, like, 10 or 15 minutes. And it's, it's, a, it's a very forgettable interpretation of Dracula. But what makes the movie the movie is like that Coolio is sort of, he's like just like a, a pothead and he's sort of like the Renfield character in the movie a bit. And it just, if you've never seen Dracula 3000, you should see it. It's, it's a treat. It's uh, <laughs> not, a, it's not like a good movie. It's not even like such a bad movie that you have to see it. It's more that like, it feels so much like, a Skinamax movie kind of it has the look of like you know a manual in space or something uh or maybe like a uh you know like or andromeda or 
and I think I know a little bit too much about Skinamax movies, but it fits that milieu, I will say. And Casper Van Dien's like fine or whatever, like he's in it. Uh, but like Coolio has like so much dialogue in this movie. I just thought a lot of times they throw a rapper in a movie in the nineties or late early two thousands, and like they have a few lines and you do a little bit. But Coolio's like all over this fucking movie. I was like, There's so much Coolio in this movie; it's insane. But the, I guess I'll just give it away because who cares? But the the last few minutes of the movie to me are insane because throughout the movie, Debo's character is just like super horny and he just keeps trying to flirt with the other women in the crew and like they don't want anything to do with it and he's just like damn i'm never gonna get laid and about an hour into the movie they revealed that this one member of the crew who's just kind of like a hothead and very by the book and always talking about the rules you find out that she's actually a robot like a cyborg or an android or whatever and that she's like a cop bot basically she's like undercover to make sure that the salvage crew isn't doing like dirt or something and she reveals that and it's just like oh so you're a fucking robot or whatever and it's like a weird thing but then like the 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 movie goes in a weird direction the final act and uh like the ship is going to explode like they're going to die uh then helsing dies so it, it just gets down to being debo and the and the cop robot and she just turns to him and is basically like you know i wasn't always a cop robot i actually used to be like a hooker bot that turned into a cop robot so technically we solved the case so i'm off the clock and he's like oh so like yeah and she's like yeah let's go do it it's it's like oh he's like well we're gonna die but i'm gonna get some ass first from this robot and they go to fuck and then the fucking shit blows up and i just something about it was like there's a lot of ways you could have ended this movie or any movie but i did not see that being the ending of the movie so when it happened i just like cackled like i couldn't breathe i was like okay all of my other misgivings about Dracula 3000 are out the window because that is how you end a movie. That is how you end a motion picture. <sighs> the next day, I watched The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, which is based on Richard Matheson's novel I Am Legend, which was the basis for the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith, and also uh, The Omega Man with Charlton Heston and like other stuff. It's a very influential piece of uh, uh, speculative fiction or whatever. And Vince McMahon's a lot. Vince McMahon, <laughs> Jesus. Vincent Price is the last man on earth. And uh, I thought the movie was going to be very hokey and cheesy because Vincent Price is in it or whatever. But it's like actually like very dark and very, really good atmosphere and mood and stuff. It's just this fucking dude who lives by himself. And like during the day, he just goes around fucking murdering these zombie vampires. And at night, he hides from them and stuff. But I feel like this movie there's this huge middle section that just is a flashback to how the plague started and all this different stuff. And it's very boring. It's like, it's like, I don't care. Maybe in 1964, they had to get that across, but like I didn't care. Uh, and the ending is much closer to what the actual ending of the book is. Like the sense that like in the future where all this, like these people, these people are like the next evolution necessary sort of. And like this one last guy that's killing them all. He's like their monster. He just shows up and murders them all every day. And um, once they get him out of the picture, now they can just take over, you know, you know, rebuild the world without him. And I, I, I feel like I Am Legend didn't really get that right, even in like the alternate ending that they didn't release or whatever, the deleted scene ending. So I, I thought it was cool. It, it worked, you know. But it, this is one of those movies that like I, like I needed on my list. I couldn't delete it because it fit uh, one of the requirements. Uh, then I watched House Houseu, the the Japanese horror film, uh, which I've somehow never seen. And I actually don't have a lot to say about it or anything to really say about it, but it was really cool. I really liked it. I thought it had a really, again, this is something I went into assuming and thinking 
that it was going to be uh, like campy and it's kind of campy, I guess. But I thought it was one of those movies that everyone likes because it's so ridiculous and bad, but it's not. It's like a pretty fucking good movie. It has like a lot of very interesting storytelling techniques and a really cool style and just a really interesting way of getting information across. And I was really enamored by it, actually. Uh, I didn't really follow the story very well, but I, I, I liked what was happening on screen. Like I liked the way it looked and felt and stuff. Uh, pretty cool movie. I feel like I'd have to see it again. I'd really like to see it like on the, on the big screen to be entirely honest, but, um, that was nice. And then I had to watch Rawhead Rex, uh, which is a movie. Um, I think it's like an Irish film and it's based on a Clive Barker story. He wrote it and it's just about this like monster that comes back and there's priests. I couldn't tell you the plot, uh, at all. Cause it, just, it did not move me, but the monster is just looks like Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. But like if he was like Bane, like if he was on that venom shit and it was just yoked and every 10 minutes or so he just shows up and starts killing people. And the rest of the movie is very boring and very kind of placid. But every time Rex shows up and starts wrecking shit, the camera gets all crazy and handheld and like has this very strong, like Sam Raimi evil dead feel and the, the kineticism and I was like, if this movie was just him killing people, this movie would be pretty sick. But there's whole other passages where I'm like, when is Rex going to come back and fucking kill someone? Uh, so I would not recommend that movie to my worst enemy. To be entirely honest, I was not a fan. Uh, and then I ended uh, my Hooptober with a movie called Amsterdam, which I'll talk about in a second. I'm going to double back a little bit here. We're going to kind of Tarantino this. I actually started the week uh, watching Five Nights at Freddy's, which is like technically a horror movie, so I put it on my list. And then uh, I went out to Baltimore. Uh, my friend Rob, uh, the Truth in This Art podcast, uh, was hosting a screening of The Blackening at a Baltimore Improv Group. And he and I did like a cool discussion afterwards and stuff, like a little live Q&A thing about the movie. And I, I saw The Blackening earlier in the year. I reviewed it. I mostly liked it. This is my second time watching it. It holds up pretty well. I think it's smart. I think it's clever. I like a lot of the ideas in it. I don't think it's quite, I don't think it's quite funny enough to be recommended as a really good comedy. And I also don't think it's anywhere near scary enough or interesting enough as a horror film to recommend as a good horror movie. It's kind of in this weird middle space where like, I, I wish someone who wasn't Tim story directed it. So the horror parts of it would be more interesting. You know what I mean? But there's a lot of good stuff in it. It's something I definitely recommend to watch, but like it doesn't make me laugh a lot and it didn't really spook me, but it's like, it was like interesting. Uh, there are a lot of jokes that made me smile is the best way I can describe it. Where you're like, Oh, I like this. Or, you know, sometimes you watch a show and there's a bit and you go, that was funny, but you don't laugh. Like you have like this acknowledgement of it. Like, I like that, that, that tickled a part of my brain, but I'm not going to laugh. That's kind of the blackening if that makes sense. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. Uh, even the second time I was like, this holds up mostly. Okay. So before I talk about Amsterdam, uh, which is how I ended my Halloween, how I ended my Hooptober. And uh, I was very happy about that. I want to talk a little bit about Five Nights at Freddy's, a movie that I could not have had less fucking interested watching, but I had a very strong sort of morbid curiosity about it. Five Nights at Freddy's made like $75 million or something opening weekend domestic here. And it was available to stream on Peacock. So that's an absurd amount of money for a day and date release. Okay. That's fucking crazy. It broke a bunch of uh, horror movie records. It broke a bunch of 
Halloween weekend records. It broke a bunch of records for video game movies. Um, it, I think it, it had like the highest opening day gross of any video game movie ever. And I was like, how did it make more money than Mario? But Mario was released on a Wednesday and this was released on a Friday. This made like 37 or $39 million on Friday. And then Mario made like 31 million on Wednesday. If Mario had come out on a Friday, it would have made more money, but on that one day anyway. So I've never played any of the five nights of Freddy's games. I'm not much of a gamer at all anyway, but I certainly never played these. And the only thing I was aware of the games was is that they have a lot of lore. People were just talking about the lore, about Five Nights at Freddy's. There's all this lore. And uh, in our group chat, uh, my friend Justin did send us like a screenshot of a YouTube thumbnail. It was like a video explaining all of the Five Nights at Freddy's lore. And it was like eight hours long. And it was just like, I'd rather fucking shoot myself. Um, so I just, I watched the movie kind of blind. And Matthew Lillard's in it. He's pretty good. I like Matthew Lillard. Josh Hutcherson trying to have a bit of a comeback. Don't know what the fuck he's really doing in this movie, but he's trying, I guess. I just thought the movie had so much going on for like no reason. And then I looked up stuff from the games to see if some of this made, there's a reason for it. And a lot of the stuff that I thought was extraneous in the movie was like not from the games. It was like added for the movie. And I guess the creator of the games helped write the movie. So I just thought that was like, he just has new material. He wants to, there's a bunch of these games. Why are you making up new stuff? But it's like Josh Hutcherson is like a, he has to, be, has to be like an overnight security guard for this place that used to be like Chuck E. Cheese essentially. But then he finds out that a bunch of kids were murdered and went missing from it. And then you find out that those kids are like possessing the animatronic machines. They're killing people. They don't know what happened to them. And the guy that is responsible for killing them is like manipulating and using them and stuff. But then he also has like a little sister. And when he was, when he was young, his little brother was kidnapped and his parent, he, he has raised his little sister and like also his aunt is trying to take custody of his little sister. So he's like trying to fight her. There's all this complicated shit. And I'm like, when am I going to see a fucking giant animatronic thing kill someone? Like, why is it? I just, I, I, I foolishly assumed that Five Nights at Freddy's was about a bunch of Chuck E. Cheese-esque robots that kill people. I thought that was very straightforward. And it's like, no, actually, there's all this other stuff. And then I went through like the Wikipedia a little bit and just clicked on a couple of little explainer articles. And the thing that is wrong with Five Nights at Freddy's to me is two things, actually. One thing is that it's just too hat on a hat. There's just too much shit. And it reminded me a little bit of like The Black Phone, which is a movie that I quite liked, to be honest. Probably my favorite thing that Scott Derrickson has done, actually. But when you watch The Black Phone, the conceit is like this boy is kidnapped and there is a phone in the basement where the uh, child murderer is holding him and the other children who've been murdered previously, their spirits can talk to him through the phone and try to help him to not get killed like them. It's based on like a Joe Hill short story. I think Stephen King's son. That's a great premise and it's really cool. But also the little boy's sister has like psychic dreams. So she sees she, like her dreams help the people figure out where he's being held. And I remember thinking, why is it both fucking pick one? Why is it the, the, the dead kid phone? And then his psychics, it's too many things. It's, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it's head and a hat. And, um, I felt like that way about five nights at Freddy's where I was like, why is he trying to resolve? It's like, he has to solve the, the, the missing brother thing and then protect his new sister. But then there's, there's these monsters and there's this job and, and just, it just, 
Then like a fucking cop lady shows up and she's like the most I've ever hated a character in something like just, she just popped up and I was like, she's so fucking annoying. What is going on? And it's just periodic info dumps. Like the way they reveal information is not very interesting. I think that the, the way information is revealed in something that's mysterious is like very important. Uh, this year when I saw when evil lurks, I really liked the way they like breadcrumb out information throughout the story and make you kind of put it together and figure it out. It's a very, a very good trickle of, of exposition and stuff. And the way they introduce ideas is really cool. Watching this, it's just like, and it's just a bunch. I, I, I wish I had bookmarked this tweet, but I saw someone say that like, this is the difference between lore and telling a story. Because telling a story is like some things happen and like the characters move through this arc and things things occur and th- things change. And then lore is just like a list of stuff that happened in the past. And when you're making a video game or something, you can have all those interesting ideas and people can find out things and these Easter eggs and stuff. But in a story, it's just like a, everything interesting that happens in Five Nights at Freddy's happened before the movie starts. If you just take it based on the movie starting and ending, this dude uh, needs a job because he has anger issues. Uh, he's sensitive to the idea that kids being kidnapped. Then he ends up working at this place that is haunted by these machines and then he fights them. And then that is it. And it takes two hours. This is like an 85 minute movie idea. That's like literally two hours. And all of this stuff in it is just referencing shit that he finds out later um, from the past. And I just... I don't think it works at all. Now, I mean, it doesn't matter that I think that because it made a bunch of money. It wasn't very expensive to produce. Kids fucking love this shit. Uh, my theater played it and I saw so many kids who were just like fucking losing their shit. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this just isn't for me. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's cool that I'm not the target audience. Uh, I'm glad it has a target audience and I'm glad it did well. Probably gonna make a lot of sequels, but I just don't know how you can make them good because it's fundamentally just a list of stuff, you know? Uh, I think I said in my letterbox review that it's like, this is the most I've ever understood what it's like to go see a superhero movie and you don't like superhero comics or you've never read them because there's so many things those movies do for nerds. It's just like, Hey, you know who that is? You know what that means? You know who that's going to be in the next one? Did you see this? And like, if you don't, didn't grow up reading comics, you're like, what the fuck is that? Who's that? Why do I care? What's the guy doing with the glove? You know? And Five Nights at Freddy's had me feel like that, where I was like, I don't know what the fuck any of this shit is, and, uh, and I don't care. It's not like the, uh, you know, like a thing where I'm like, I gotta go find this out. And like, I don't even, I literally started reading an article explaining the stuff, and I was like, uh, no, you know what? This is just not for me. That's okay. Like, this just doesn't matter. I'm, it's not, I'm not, I'm not the guy for this, and that's okay. It was kind of freeing in a way, actually. Um, when I was younger, I used to be so afraid of like getting old and out of touch and understanding stuff, but like, as I get older, Sometimes it feels really good to just be able to go, nope, no idea what that is. That is for other people. That's okay. They make stuff for me. I'm happy. I'm not mad. <laughs> like, I still have stuff that I like. You know, they're not, I'm not fucked. Um, but uh, I just have to accept when something is not for my uh, my demographic. But anyway, that all builds up to Amsterdam, which is the last horror movie I watched of the month. It's a movie directed by a guy named Dick Moss. Uh, or Dick Mass. I don't know how to pronounce it. He's Dutch. Uh, my friend Cody, uh, suggested me to watch it. Uh, Cody has brought a great many movies into my life. If it wasn't for Cody, we would not all have dog face, a trap house horror. Cody's got a unique taste. I will say I love him to death, but sometimes he tells me to watch something and I'm like, what are you going to do? What is this? What are we, what are we doing? But he told me I should watch Amsterdam because it was really good. I saw the poster and the poster is like sick. 
But I was like, I don't know. I just assumed it was going to be like a goofy, crazy thing. But uh, I really liked it. It's like a good ass movie. Amsterdam is like essentially like a Dutch giallo. Like it has the trappings of a giallo, but minus Italy and minus like the cool. The music in this is cool, but it's not it's not like giallo music. And there's like a guy in a scuba suit murdering people in Amsterdam. And it's like this movie's version of the black love POV stuff from like, you know, a giallo movie. And then there's a detective who has to try to solve it. And then like the detective has this like precocious kind of wisecracking like teen daughter and they have a lot of funny dialogue and stuff. And like, he's a really good detective, but he just looks like a quintessential like eighties guy. Like he looks like he could have been like the third guy in wham, um, or like a bass player for like, I don't know, like Wang Chung or something. He just, he's, he's extremely eighties. This movie's a 1989 film. He's just super eighties. And I don't, I didn't know much about Amsterdam. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not cultured. Um, but I didn't know that much of Amsterdam is, there's all this, well, there's water everywhere. There's like people just boat all over the fucking place. There's water throughout the city and stuff. And the movie is very much about how this killer is like popping out of the water to kill people and then going back into it. So he can't get, he can't be traced. And then like they just, they show that he has like a rival detective that he used to be friends with but he stole that guy's girl and then him and that girl had a baby and the girl ran off with another guy. So now he's like a single parent and he meets the guy and he's like, you know, I'm sorry that I told your girl. And he's like, it's cool. Don't ever do it again, but we're still boys. So they decide to work together on the case and they just, they're just like kind of, it becomes kind of like a buddy, a buddy cop movie sort of. And there's all this stuff with his daughter and she's really funny. And then like the actual murders are pretty fucked up. The mystery is pretty well done. And then all of a sudden the cop starts having like this, like romance with this, girl he meets because they, they assume it has to be someone who does scuba shit so they go into the scuba world or whatever the diver world and he meets this like hot chick and they start kind of hitting it off but she has like this guy that he thinks is her guy but it's really just her therapist and you're like 99.99 percent sure the therapist is the killer because like he just looks like he probably is uh i won't give away the ending because it's actually really shitty it's a fucking horrible ending actually but i will say that amsterdam uh was very important for me in the sense that it's the most I've hated an ending and still liked the movie. I'm a huge proponent of telling people that like, if you have a decent movie or mediocre movie, or maybe even kind of a bad one, but your last five to 10 minutes is great. I will ignore so much else about the movie. I think a good ending really makes up for a lot. And sometimes a really good movie can have a really bad ending and it ruins everything. This ending is horrible, but I didn't care because the movie's so good. Otherwise, or at least it was to me. Uh, and I think the, the reason I didn't care about the ending being bad is that like every giallo or giallo adjacent horror slasher thriller murder mystery movie that I see, uh, they all have bad endings. Like they all have really bad killer reveals where when they show you who the killer is, you're like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> who is, who is even that? And then they're like, remember the Butler's sister that you saw for one second? That's her dad or whatever. And they're just like, huh? Um, Every movie like that that I see always has a stupid fucking reveal. And they always have to explain it to you in exacting detail because they know you don't remember who it is. They know you don't know what's going on. Uh, and there's always something that's like, there's always been a red herring that they never explain that away. So you're like, okay, well, if this is the killer, then what was that guy up to? Because if he's not the killer, that doesn't make any sense. So in a way, the ending being terrible is just like genre appropriate. I think it would have been weird if it actually had a good ending. So I'm going to give it a pass for the terrible ending. It's, it's very fucking stupid, extremely laughable. 
but uh in the middle of this movie there's a fucking high-speed boat chase sometimes when you watch a movie or you watch lots of movies like i do or like many of us do you go into a movie and even if you don't know exactly what's going to happen you know the lay of the land of what could happen like if i'm watching a romantic comedy or something i know that there's not going to be like a random fight scene like there might be violence maybe like maybe the guy gets beat up by like a bully or something but like I know in the middle of a Meg Ryan movie that no one's going to do Krav Maga. That's basically safe, you know? But sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, I didn't know this was that kind of movie. Uh, Like you watch a movie and then you're like, this is not a movie I thought that was going to happen in. It doesn't have to be anything drastic or crazy. It's just like, it just didn't occur to me that there was going to be a high speed boat chase in this movie. And it's actually really fucking good. It's like really thrilling. It's like the French Connection you know, uh, to live and die in LA, uh, Ronin of, of boat chases basically. And I fucking loved it. I was like, so, so into this movie, man. Um, Amsterdam's on shutter right now. I think I, I know horror movie month is over, but we watch horror movies all year round. Who cares? I definitely implore you to check out Amsterdam. I think you'll really like it. Uh, really well done, like really well made. It's very charming and like clever and dialogue's pretty funny for the most part. Like, uh, yeah, just really fucking good movie. Definitely check that out. Um, so that's, I finished October. Those are my horror movies. Uh, so I went to three press screenings this week. I'm not going to get too deep in the movies, obviously, because I still have to review them and stuff. And I don't like just give it all away here quite, but, um, Wednesday morning I saw Ferrari, the new Michael Mann film, which I really liked. I, I can at least say that I was very impressed by it. It was not at all what I was expecting. Um, I kind of went into it thinking it was going to be more like the insider or Ali, like sort of like man's two most like regular people movies. Um, and also one of them's a bio, they're both biopics kind of, or they're based on true stories, let's say. So I thought it'd be like that, but it's not like that. It's kind of, it's kind of a lot of things. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I really fucking liked it. I think Adam driver is amazing in it. I think if Lily Gladstone's performance in Killers of the Flower Moon didn't exist, Penelope Cruz would be like a shoe-in for like Best Actress. Like she's so good in this movie. Um, Eric Messerschmidt's cinematography is really good. It's like a very different version of the digital stuff that man does. I think some of that is just the fact that now he's using like better cameras. I think that's a big a big thing about the way man would do digital in like the early 2000s and stuff was just that those cameras were like shit. You know what I mean? Like compared to the cameras we have now. So in some ways it's better because there's just nicer, newer, better sensors. Uh, and that the movie's style feels a little bit more, uh, traditional, I suppose, but it's still, it's still like digital. It's still, it's, it's not like, uh, it's not like he suddenly tried to move away or hide from it or anything. It's just different. The performances are all really good. Everything about it is just very, it's very emotional. It's very, the way it ta- deals with like, man stuff i really want to talk about that a lot more in my review like it's it's a very it's a movie michael mann makes the best movies about men it's kind of the best thing i can really say about it like i don't know if anyone else gets it um because there's moments in the movie that are like very complex and difficult and raw and vulnerable in a way that not a lot of people can can depict men in, in, in this kind of correct light but then there's other moments that are just like super dudes rock moments there's one moment in particular that actually the the final version of the trailer for the movie uses pieces from this speech. It's a scene where Ferrari is like digging into his drivers 
about how they're not like cutthroat enough on the racetrack. And, uh, it's, it's like such a good speech. It's such, it's such a Michael Mann scene and driver just makes a meal out of it. And there's this moment he's basically talking about like in the trail, you kind of see it. He's essentially saying like, you know, in a race, there's going to be a moment where two people occupy the same space and they can't, and something's going to have to happen. Someone's going to have to bump someone or whatever. And the trailer does a really good job of juxtaposing this with the fact that uh, hit the central issue of his life at this point in the story is that he's married to one woman and then he's secretly living with his mistress and her, their child. And, and the other, like these two people can occupy the same space. It's a, it's an interesting way to frame the trailer. It's smart, but in the context of the movie, it's more specifically about the race itself. It's very literal. And he's explaining how, like, when you get to this moment, all of my drivers are very smart and like erudite people. And they're going to think like, what would the French think if they see me roll this guy, you know, off the track? What, if, what would they think if I would look like a barbarian? Like they were, you know, they, they get in their head about how violent the sport can be and that prevents them from having a killer instinct. And he's like, meanwhile, these other drivers, they get on that hairpin turn. They get in that moment. And they look and they say, fuck it. We both die. <laughs> and he's basically telling them like, that's the energy you have to have to, to win. And when he, when he delivers the fuck it, we both die line. I got like chills. I was just like, the only way I could, the, the only thing I could compare it to actually, this isn't a Michael Mann thing. It's Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday, Al Pacino's Inches speech. You know, when he's like, it's a game of inches, football. Uh, when you watch that scene, when it's over, you're ready to go hit the field. Like, I am extremely unathletic at this point in my life, but whenever I see or watch the Inches scene on YouTube, I am ready to go, like, run a play or something. I'm ready to just, like, fucking run through a brick wall. So, in ferrari when when he had that line about fuck it we both die i was just like yeah i was ready to go do something i didn't do anything but i i wanted to, i watched the rest of the movie you know but good movie we'll, we'll talk about that more uh when i review it and stuff but then today i went and saw dream scenario actually uh the new nicholas cage movie i cannot remember the director's name i meant to watch his last film the other night but i just wasn't in the mood uh dream scenario kind of Kaufman-esque, very Charlie Kaufman-esque, really good Nicolas Cage performance, pretty, pretty good movie. I have some issues with it. I think that video will probably be out next week, so I don't, I won't spoil all that, but good movie. Uh, I would recommend it, but, um, I have some stuff, some thoughts. And then, uh, just a few hours ago, I saw David Fincher's The Killer, and I'm actually reviewing this for Looper, so there's not going to be a good video about it, uh, but it is such a banger <laughs> uh surprising no one it's a it's a real fucking slapper and it in some ways feels like the most the most steven soderbergh a fincher movie has ever been i can say and it makes so much sense to me now why soderbergh said he loved it so much because it very much feels like 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 all of his personal preoccupations it's, it's fincher's too like they have they have some overlap as storytellers but it's probably why they're friends but uh so much of the movie feels like something he I, I, you know the, the some of the some of the like touchstones or that some of the common inspirations i think between the two of them is like uh like john pierre melville is obviously like an influence in the film but i think they're probably it's also kind of inspired by point blank the Lee Marvin movie. And I know that that was a huge influence on Soderbergh. Like it, it strongly informs the limey. So you can kind of see a little bit of that connection maybe. And then there's also, uh, 
just the, the the way Soderbergh is so so good at, at at telling stories about like what I would say it's like the intersection of like commerce and just uh and just like humanity right like so many of his stories are about like people and how living in capitalism affects their lives um he's he he famously said like he doesn't understand superhero movies because he doesn't know how they pay their bills he's like I don't know how they, who pays them how do they get paid like that is sort of his entry point into the human experience is is like labor in some ways and fincher i don't think is the same or i guess actually fincher i guess in, in many ways is like very concerned with what people do and how they do it like he's kind of a process guy i think um and so is soderbergh too obviously but like that's sort of the thing so so much of the killer is like the process of being a contract killer and all this different stuff and obviously it's sort of like a metaphor for fincher's actual career like Fassbender's voiceover narration explaining how he does things sounds like a director's commentary. Um, there's a lot of ch- cheeky shit like that in the movie. And the meticulous sort of clinical precision stuff that the killer is like, is that's how Fincher directs his movies. And look, it's like a, it's a, definitely like a B movie. It's definitely kind of like low hanging fruit. It's not like, you know, it, it, I don't think it's going to be part of the Oscar conversation or things like that. But it's really, really well made. It's really, really good. And I've already seen people talk about it sort of like, eh, this is probably just going to be like a nice base hit. Like we're, we like it, but it's not going to hold up on repeat viewings. And I don't think so. I think on repeat viewings, it's going to actually be even stronger because it feels just the same way Fight Club felt like a, a real interesting snapshot of like 90s consumerism. This feels like a snapshot of like modern consumerism and like how things have changed at like the gig economy and all that shit. And, um, it, it's really cool. It really, it, it, it's sometimes people ask me what kind of movies I like. And it, sometimes I have to say there are things I like disproportionately to how other people like them. And I can comfortably say that Fincher's the killer is like extremely my shit. It's like a movie made specifically for me. <laughs> so I totally get if other people watch it and think it's like minor Fincher or slight or whatever. But like, I'm someone who really enjoys the game, who really enjoyed Panic Room, and I've been kind of missing the idea of Fincher being a guy who like does fun pulp shit. So I'm glad he made this, even if it's like kind of a weird mea culpa for Mank, which I, I liked. I don't know why everybody else hated it, you know, but I liked it a lot. So yeah, the killer I'm I'm gonna read that for Looper. Uh I don't I don't think I'm gonna make like a video about it too. I don't like to double dip, but uh definitely see it. It it hits Netflix on the tenth. Uh, I saw it at, uh, at my friend's theater cause, um, they're playing it like for real, but, uh, I, I, you know, I want to see it again, uh, preferably on a bigger screen, but that's not going to happen cause the way Netflix releases these movies. So I'll watch it again at home once it hits, but it's definitely, definitely, definitely worth checking out. Uh, okay. So that's what I watched. We have time for questions, but I think I only have one this week. Okay. Question from my friend, Luke, Luke asks, how do you think it would do if they spent the upcoming quiet movie year re-releasing all of the Mission Impossible films in theaters again, like one per month? This is interesting. This is, I think, a question from the episode where I talked about how Mission Impossible 8 is not going to be called Dead Reckoning Part 2, how they're going to have to move it to 2025 and all this crazy shit. And this is an interesting idea in the sense that that would be kind of cool, right? Like it would allow people a bunch of time to like refamiliarize themselves with the franchise and like make it fresh again and stuff. But I don't think it would work. And here's why 
in the before times before covid and stuff uh re-releases for movies would kind of only work if it was like a really classic movie that everybody like has a connection to and now there's something about it making it new again and making it feel like a historical event like an anniversary like a new remastering or maybe someone passed away or something or, or whatever there's something that makes it like this has to be an event we are all going to collectively go back and watch x movie you know and during when theaters first reopened in 2020 there was no new product a lot of theaters had to play a lot of rep stuff and uh and none of them were doing like fun, interesting rep stuff the way like small rep houses do or like artsy places. They were just doing like whatever the studio was kind of pushing on them. Like, hey, we're going to release this or that. And what I've discovered having played some of them in my own theater is like unless there is that sort of like event feeling, that kind of cultural force pressing against the re-release, people do not give a shit. So like. When they replayed Avatar, it was like, you know, like the anniversary of Avatar. There was like the new 4K version, all this different stuff. That was sort of to prime the pump for Avatar Way of Water. And it did pretty well. And people liked it. People hadn't seen it in a long time. And now they're seeing it looking better than ever, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing. But, or like like the Star Wars re-releases when I was like a kid, stuff like that. But the problem is like, if you were to do the entire Mission Impossible franchise, it's like seven fucking movies and of a varying quality to a lot of people and as much of a big star as tom cruise is it would just it would dilute it there would be no way to make that a sustained thing where people would care like maybe you know parts of it would work if it was like you know you rewatch like the burj khalifa sequence and imax stuff like that some of the specific sequences people want to see but all those movies over again I don't think it would work. And every, I mean, theaters around here are still doing all these random re-releases during slow periods and they don't connect. We did one for, um, uh, Hocus Pocus. People did not really fucking come. You know what I mean? Cause it's just like, it's on fucking TV. Like you have to make it feel special. You have to make it special again. And now that a lot of people have nice TVs and shit at home and nice projectors, I just saw a video for a projector that has Dolby vision enabled. Like you can hook it up to your Apple TV and like, it'll have like, really crisp really beautiful you know contrast ratios and shit whatever it looks it looks it looks really gorgeous um people are less likely to go to the theater unless it's something that they have to go to the theater for so i don't think it would actually work and i mean it's kind of a bummer because there's definitely a lot of stuff where i think really re-releasing something would be good to even set up a, a new release like bringing something back before the sequel comes out and stuff like that i think that's it can be good but to get people to go to the movies to see a movie now, you have to spend so much money to, to to have a piece of their attention, to get their attention and say, you have to do this. It's an uphill battle. It's why every movie has these exorbitant marketing budgets, because you have to spend that much money to get a sliver of someone's attention and time to see your thing and go, I want that. It's so much harder than it used to be. I feel like people used to just go to the theater and let's see what's playing and just go and watch something. And there are people that are still like this, obviously. Like I have people come up and they're like, I don't even know what's playing. I kind of want to watch a movie. But it's so much less than it used to be. It used to be people just come like, I always come on this day of the week. I, I you know, I leave work early. I come see a movie. What do you got? So much less of that. People now need to be convinced. Do you know what I mean? Like they, it's gonna be, I don't want to be horny, but like it, it's, it's definitely more like there needs to be more foreplay to get people to see stuff nowadays. You know what I mean? Like it's not. It's not like that first year marriage, you're just ready to go. It's like, no, we gotta, we gotta ease into this. Um, and 
It's a lot of commitment. So yeah, that's what I think. Great question, Luke. Thank you. Uh, okay, that's the episode, I guess. Uh, thank you guys for, for listening. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube uh, and you liked it, please give it a like, a little thumbs up. And if you loved it, please subscribe. Hit the little bell icon to get notifications whenever I put out new videos. Um, I have I had the screenings this week. I have some screenings next week, too. So we are going to have some new reviews on the channel very soon. Um, you'll be the first person to see when those drop. You don't want to be late to that, do you? Uh, if you have any questions just about the episode or just or questions for future episodes, you can put those in the comments below. Love talking to you all. Uh, and if you don't want to do it there, you can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram. You can email me at armchairautor@gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, that's that, that's that. And then if you're listening to this not on YouTube, if you're listening to this on whatever other podcast platform you prefer, please uh, follow me on there, or subscribe to me, or give me a little rating, a little review, or something. Share it with your friends. Get the word out. Don't gatekeep me. Uh, yeah. So. Thank you guys again for listening and engaging and all that stuff and supporting me. Uh, it means the world to me. I appreciate you all. So yeah, I'm gonna go. We'll uh, we'll talk soon.